Hello and welcome to The Scriptures Are Real. This is the podcast where we talk about elements of the scriptures that have helped them become more real to us because we believe that that allows us to draw more power from them and we certainly need that power. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and we want to welcome back Dr. Andrew Skinner, who has been with us uh, several times, including last week, and we told you then that uh, we'd be back again this week as we continue to explore uh, the uh, the most important events in the history of the universe. And that sounds flippant to say, but I actually really mean that. And uh, we are uh, so fortunate, I think, to have Dr. Skinner to help us to understand those things. Uh, if you were with us last week, if not, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that episode. Uh, it was an edifying, uh, somewhat exhausting. I, I, Whenever I really think about um, <clears throat> the atoning, sacrifice of our savior it's it's uh both exhilarating and somewhat overwhelming to me um but uh we had uh what i think was a fantastic discussion and we in there we mentioned and and i uh, asked dr skinner to show he had to go get them and show them but uh the three books that he has written on this subject and this week i'll show you the the version i have which is all three of them together so this is called the final week, uh, the Savior's final week, and you can see it's got his book Gethsemane and his book Golgotha and his book The Garden Tomb, uh, all combined into one book. And so I kind of preferred it that way um, because I just like to have all three of them together. Uh, <laughs> I, we all have a link for that in the show notes. Uh, I highly recommend it. Uh, but uh, besides teaching this for your years, both in the Holy Land and uh, on BYU campus and elsewhere at BYU Idaho. Um, He's that then given it a tremendous amount of thought as he's written about that. And so we're fortunate to, to have him to share those thoughts with us. So thank you, Dr. Skinner, for being with us. Okay, before we get started, I actually just want to kind of uh, let our audience know about another opportunity they would have to hear from you and actually correct a mistake uh, or something I overlooked earlier. I, I think a couple of weeks ago, I told uh, my audience about uh, Spark, that that uh, the lectures we do at Spark, and that's the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures. I told them to go to sparkproject.org, but most of them will probably spell Spark with a K. Uh, but since it's the Society for the Preservation of Ancient Religious Cultures, that's Spark with a C. So um, uh, Dr. Skinner is going to do a lecture on uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and and what it can teach us about uh, Latter-day Saints or the Savior, some he'll he'll. Uh, fine-tune it, I'm sure, and, and decide exactly what he's going to talk about then. But uh, that will be on June 29th at 7 p.m. That's for Spark. Now, you, you do have to be a member of Spark if you're going to uh, be part of those lectures. And it is something that that uh, men membership with Spark is a, a paid subscription. It's very cheap. You can get it for as cheap as $35 a year. And then you have all sorts of lectures by Dr. Skinner or Carrie Hole or myself or uh, Matthew Gray and others. So um, uh, we just invite you, if you're interested in that at all, to go to Spark Project. That's Spark with a C, sparkproject.org, and uh, check out the things that can be part of that. And then you could have the chance to hear Dr. Skinner lecture on June 29th. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Mielstein, Carrie, for <laughs> this privilege and opportunity to uh, share some thoughts and bear my testimony. I truly am grateful for this privilege. Yeah, there is something about uh, uh, being able to really, uh, I mean, and honestly, we could have gone longer on every topic we talked about last week, and I'm sure that will be true for this week. But still, it's nice to have a time to really delve into 
some of these things that are so meaningful and to share them with others. And I have to say that uh, there's a part of me that hopes that uh, my grandchildren will listen to this. Uh, mm-hmm. I only have one right now, but future grandchildren will listen to this uh, and that they'll know that I knew and believed. Well said. So with uh, with all of that, uh, let's jump in. Last week, um, the reading was uh, John 18 and Luke 22, and we didn't even cover all of that. This week, the reading is Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Uh, so we go through more of the trials and the crucifixion of the Savior. So uh, where would you like to start and, and uh, what would you like to talk about, my, my good friend? Well, I, I think we'll we'll start at the entrance to the Garden of Gethsemane uh, after the intensity of the Savior's uh, terrible ordeal in Gethsemane subsides a bit, or at least lessens. We come to appreciate the fact that the pace of events do not. They increase in intensity and rapidity. Uh, there is no rest, no respite from the brutal, exhausting series of events that uh, occur over the next 12 hours and that culminate in Jesus being nailed to the cross, Golgotha's cross. Uh, To pick up where we left off last week, as Jesus is concluding his prayer, the prayer that he prayed three times and in between the offering of those prayers, checking on his disciples, uh, he sees off in the distance the temple police force coming Uh, This composed of the chief priests, the elders uh, of the people, the Jewish people, and Roman soldiers. And they come to the entrance of the garden. And uh, the synoptics indicate that uh, when they get there, Judas, the betrayer, a member of the Twelve, steps forward. uh, And he identifies Jesus uh, undoubtedly through a prearranged signal. He gives Jesus a kiss. And this is the way Matthew 26 describes it. Uh, And while he yet spake, in other words, Jesus, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. And Jesus said unto him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then came they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Um, I guess a couple of thoughts. Number one, how it must have stung the Savior emotionally and spiritually to have one of his uh, chosen servants, one of his chosen apostles, uh, to betray him in, in such a manner. And uh, one cannot help but think that as this scenario is playing out, Jesus was thinking of a passage of Scripture, which seems to, to describe perfectly what happens. This is Proverbs 27, verse 6, quote, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Well, Jesus is the friend. Faithful are his wounds. In other words, redemptive are his wounds through his atoning sacrifice. But the kiss of the betrayer is truly deceitful. Now, 
we have no way of knowing what Jesus thought, but no. uh, he gave the he gave the scriptures in the Old Testament, so to speak, <laughs> and, and I think he knew them. Yeah. And so one has to believe that that this was on his mind. And, and it's, uh, it's my oh sorry sorry keep going. I was going to say, uh, but this is not the way that John chapter eighteen presents the betrayal. If we look at John chapter eighteen. As the temple police force arrives, we come to appreciate that it's Jesus who steps forward, and he asks this group what it is that they want. And the wording is particularly important here because of what happens next. So I'm looking at John chapter 18, starting with verse 3. John 18, verse 3. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am. Now, notice in that uh, verse 5 that the pronoun he is in italics, meaning that it doesn't exist in the text, the pronoun mm -hmm. itself. What Jesus really says in response to their query, uh, to, to his query and, and their comment, uh, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, and he uses this loaded term, I am in Greek ego eimi, or in Hebrew ehie asher ehie, which means uh, I am that I am. It's taken from Exodus chapter three verse fourteen. It's one of the divine names by which uh, by which God is known. And now Jesus is using it to identify Himself, and it cannot have been lost on those who knew their scriptures, that Jesus was identifying himself by using the divine name of Jehovah, or one of the divine names of Jehovah. Uh, again, going back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, the way that Jehovah identified himself to Moses, I am that I am, or now in the Greek, ego eimi. And by the way, that phrase, ego uh, eimi, um, is the equivalent in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, to the Hebrew, ehieh, asher, ehieh. What happens then, it seems to me to be understandable. Um, uh, let's see, where are we? Oh, and uh, he said unto them, who say that they answered Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said, I am. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon as he then, excuse me, as soon then as he had said unto them, I am, they went backwards and fell to the ground. And so Jesus asks them again, whom are you looking for? Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you, I am, or I'm identifying myself to you through this loaded term reserved for deity. If therefore ye seek me, let these go their way. Couple of lessons there. Uh, number one, I think it's not only the fact that Jesus identifies himself by using this divine phrase, I am, 
which harks back to Exodus chapter 3, but it's also the force of his personality. Wow, we've just had this powerful person speak to us, and he's identified himself effectively as as, uh, God. I also think that we learn that uh, apparently Jesus did not look appreciably different in the darkness that night from other middle-aged men in Judea. Uh, and and they most of them don't know who he is and indicates then that they hadn't had a lot of connection with Jesus or his disciples or the early Christian movement. So I think that that's part of what's embedded uh, in these verses. The other thing I would say we learned from this passage is that Jesus now has become very protective of his apostles. He does not want anything to happen to them because they really are the future of the church. They'll be the key holders. They are the key holders, and they will be the ones to direct the affairs of the kingdom on earth. I go back to a point that we talked about last time, namely that in the upper room, uh, Peter says to Jesus, uh, I am with I am with you all the way. I'm ready to go to prison with you. I'm ready to die for you. And immediately Jesus responds with, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. I think it's worth considering that Jesus may have been commanding Peter to deny knowing Jesus precisely for the same reason that he says to the temple police force, if you're looking for me, let my associates go in order to protect the leadership of the church after Jesus is crucified. So anyway, those are those are thoughts we don't know for sure. Uh, I'm I'm not declaring this as doctrine, but simply yeah. suggesting that we might look at this. And we also see here Peter showing that he is uh, willing to to die with the Savior because, as, as you pointed out, I mean, we've just read that there's an armed band. Yeah, that come and Peter immediately starts to fight. He's ready to go down fighting right here. There's, we don't have to ask whether he is. He's shown. He's yeah. ready to go down fighting right here. So, in, in this is the amazing thing to me. In the middle of this group, and it's been suggested that the group that's there to arrest Jesus may have been upwards of six hundred persons. This is not a little group, right? This is not, a, you know, a, a, a couple of night watchmen that have shown up. Yeah. But this is a, a real uh, a weaponized force. Uh, in the middle of this, verse 10 says, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And the servant's name was Malchus. Uh, I think John identifies him because he was there. This is an authentic account. Yeah, and so, John seems to know a number of the people that will be involved in this and in the trial. So exactly, it's it's, it's that little hint of authenticity. Like, okay, I know this guy. Yeah, exactly. So um, we come away. I guess I come away appreciating uh, the strength of character of Peter even more. Uh, it's not just strength of character; it's resolve. He's a man. He's a powerful man who says to Jesus what he really means. And we've seen that throughout Jesus's ministry. There's no pretense with Peter. And now he's demonstrating that he really is ready to die. And if there was uh, even the slightest hint of Peter's faith flagging or diminishing, you would think it would have shown up here. Not 
uh, later on when he's in the courtyard of the high priest and the servant girl, the lowest rung uh, uh, class of society, says, well, I saw you, and, and Peter denies uh, knowing him. That's not the place that Peter's flagging faith you know, should have shown up. So yeah. when Jesus earlier said, I have prayed for you that your faith fail not, I think that that's referring to this very moment. Anyway, that's th that's a, a point that, that uh, people can consider. And we have mentioned before this magnificent talk by President Spencer W. Kimball entitled Peter, My Brother, where he has listened to uh, on the radio to a, a pastor who talks about Peter's lack of character and Peter's weakness. And, and President Kimball says, the more I listen to this pastor, the more my blood began to boil because he's defaming my brother, the senior right. apostle on earth. And, and then he says, All right, you know, maybe we need to reevaluate our understanding of what's going on here. And I, I love that talk too. You really get that sense from President Kimball that he feels a kinship with the first person to hold the office that he currently holds, that he is Peter's successor. And it's impressive. Uh, Absolutely. Have, yeah. Absolutely. I have my own uh, crazy idea, like uh, you've already seen so often, I have my own crazy idea. but uh, <laughs> And that's not to discount the the truth of what, uh, I don't know if it's true or not. I don't think President Kimball was declaring it as doctrine when he said, but he, uh, he did suggest that perhaps this was the Savior telling him to deny him. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that, that that's uh, incompatible with this idea, but I think there may be uh, another element at play as well. Uh, as I have really tried to learn about Peter. And that Peter has a characteristic, and this is when I kind of started understanding it, when I recognize a, Peter, a characteristic in Peter that I wanted to emulate. And that is, and I think it's actually, if we look at all of the things we see Peter do, it's the primary characteristic that the gospel writers give us of Peter, and it's that he wants to be with the Savior. He wants to be with the Savior no matter what, so that if he sees the Savior walking on water, he doesn't want to wait for the Savior to come and get in the boat. He's going to walk and go be with the Savior, or we can switch that to after the resurrection, he sees the Savior on the shore, and he's not going to wait for the boat to get to the Savior. He's going to jump in and swim to be with the Savior. He's going to be the one that says, to whom should we go? Uh, he's going to be the one that uh, uh, says, you know, don't wash my feet, but when the Savior says, well, you can't be with me, then he said, then wash everything. I'm going to be with you, right? He's going to be the one who says, let me come and be with you in your kingdom uh, when uh, I've, I've reached a, a reasonable age and I die, and so on. Uh, in this case here, I think he's saying, you are not going to take this man away from me. I will fight to the death to have you not take this man away from me. He wants to be with the Savior desperately. Uh, with everything he has, he wants to be with the Savior. And, well, and oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was say, and it's for that very reason that you've articulated that I think Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. People say, well, how do you explain that? You know, well, I explained it for the very reason you say. It it just goes against every grain in Peter's soul to, to abandon the Savior, to leave him, you know, to the forces of, of evil, precisely because he has spent his whole three-year ministry wanting to be with the Savior yeah, in, in every circumstance. So that's that's the reason for the weeping is that it just galls him to have to be obedient to the Savior's request that he deny Jesus. It's not because his faith weakened. No, I, anyway. and I don't think it's a matter of faith, but I think if you study that, that story of the, uh, the trial 
you remember that uh, they they go to the trial and and John knows somebody inside and so he gets in. But Peter doesn't, yeah. and he can't get in. And I think this probably is killing Peter. The Savior's in there going through a trial, and I'm out here. I'm not with him where I should be. Yeah. And then John, you know, pulls his strings, and he gets Peter in. And three times, people say, wait a minute. Don't you know that guy? And each time, it kind of carries with it the connotations. If so, you know, then this yeah. we may throw you out, or something may happen to you. And I think probably Peter is recognizing if he says, yes, I, I know him, I'm one of his followers, that he actually will be separated from the Savior at that moment. And I don't know, but I think that there might be a part of Peter who is willing to say, I don't know him because of his desire, maybe because the Savior's already told him, you need to do this. But yeah. I think also because of his desire to not be cast out right then, he wants to be with the Savior. And and uh, I, I think that's probably part of what's at play here. And that, as you said, makes uh, all the more sense in the weeping when he, he realizes I've done, possibly I've done what the Savior asked me to do. As we said, we don't know, but I think that that's a real uh, possible element here. But also, I've said these things trying to be in the Savior's presence, but look where it's gotten me. Yeah. Um, and I also yeah. think it's part of the Savior's suffering. Even if he's asked Peter to do it, even if he understands Peter's doing this because Peter wants to be with the Savior, wants to be next to the Savior, when he is in the middle of this unjust, unfair, everything about it is wrong trial, and he hears the cock crow, he knows that his yeah. staunchest follower has just denied knowing him. Yeah. And it's just got to be one one more straw on that camel's back, right? Um, as he increases his his uh, treading the wine press alone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That the Savior ha has to turn and look and say, well, yeah. there's Peter of all people. I, I think, Peter and I think, you know, it doesn't have to be one thing or the other. I think I it's agree. a combination of things and, and this idea of protecting, you know, the 12. I, uh, I agree. That's, that's the sense I get. Uh, people sometimes ask, well, wh why can't you just go to the original Greek text and resolve the issue? The problem is, is that, uh, that the statement of the Savior before the cock crow, you will deny me three times, it can be either a predictive form or an imperative right. or command form. Yeah. That's the problem with, with the Greek. And <laughs> I don't may maybe it was intended on purpose to be that way. So we would think more deeply ab ab about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want, before we get away from the arrest, I do want to point out that uh, Judas's betrayal. Oh, let me say this. I think it's at this point then after, after Jesus confronts the group and is the first one to make some comments. What, who are you seeking? It's at that point that then the betrayer steps forward and he gives Jesus a kiss, which is the ultimate signal so that there, there's no question in anybody's mind that they have the right guy. Uh, and, and when you think about it, betrayal by a kiss is absolutely insidious. Yeah. Uh, if we look at, at scripture, um, a a kiss uh often if not always signified ultimate reconciliation it reconciled the two group the two parties coming together out of mutual love and respect for each other think of 
of Esau running to Jacob, embracing Jacob, falling on his knees and kissing him, and them weeping together. Or think about Joseph of Old Testament fame, who we are told kissed all of his brothers, all of his brethren, and wept upon them, and after that talked with them. That's Genesis 45. Uh, when the Lord sends Aaron to Moses and um, and finds him in the Mount of God, he kisses him. Uh, among later Jews, a kiss was a token of respect between pupil and teacher, or between uh, master and student, the great rabbis, my master literally uh, is the translation of the word rabbi. Among Christians, the kiss was a supreme act of fellowship and brotherhood. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells the early church members to, quote, greet all the brethren with an holy kiss, 1 Thessalonians 5.26. I, I have a, a childhood friend who we went to high school together, and his father was uh, first stake president in an area of of uh, Portland, Oregon. And uh, he, uh, the person that uh, ordained his father was Spencer W. Kimball. And uh, my friend says they were walking down the streets of Salt Lake one day, he and his father, and all of a sudden there was a big commotion, traffic screeching to a halt. And they see this short little man running across the street, you know, not using the crosswalk. And it was President Kimball who runs up to my friend's father and gives him, plants two big kisses on his cheek because they had this close connection when Elder Kimball, then Elder Kimball, had called his dad to be the state president. So uh, that's always been an, an image in my mind. And now to have one of the 12, and I think that that's the reason that that is singled out. Mm -hmm. in the writings is this was one of the 12 that that did this so that we can understand the perfidy the the disingenuous the the treachery yeah. of this and and i and i think that that's an important thing to to keep in mind and, and we've uh, spoken a few times about uh, elder maxwell one of my favorite elder maxwell lines is uh, irony is the crust on the bread of adversity and yeah. the irony there there's as as you start really from this part with uh, Judas and all the way through the rest of this story, there's irony after irony after irony uh, that I think adds to the suffering of the Savior. And this is one of them. How ironic it is that he's betrayed by that symbol adds to the Savior's suffering, uh, his feelings of betrayal uh, and so on as he goes through all of, of these things that we yeah. say he has to go through in the flesh. No, no question, no question about it. Well, um, of course, uh, Jesus tells his chief apostle to put away his sword. Those who live by the sword die by the sword, and this is not the reason that Jesus has come to earth. And then uh, Jesus is uh, bound and taken, as we read in the synoptics, to the high priest. But John chapter 18, uh, again, uh, adds to the narrative and tells us that in reality, Jesus is taken first to the palace of Annas. And Annas is not the current high priest, but he has been the high priest in the days of Jesus's youth. Annas ruled as high priest from 7 AD to 15 AD. He was deposed by uh, the Roman governor, Gratus, but Jesus ends up speaking first to Annas, which tells us that Annas 
as the previous high priest, is a person of tremendous influence. And in fact, we learn that the current high priest, Caiaphas, Caiaphas, whom Jesus will then be taken to, is Anas's son-in-law. And so powerful is Anas that five of Anas's sons will succeed to the office of high priest. So the reason that Jesus goes first to Anas, according as is recorded in John chapter 18, is because Caiaphas wants to get a clear signal that putting Jesus to death uh, will not violate any ideas that his father-in-law has. And that's basically what happens. Yep. Yeah, you get the feeling. I mean, we've got this phrase, the, the power behind the throne, and I don't know yeah. if you want to say throne for the high priest, but it, it, it's pretty clear that Anas is the the power behind the high priest seat oh, yeah. for Caiaphas and for others, that he's, he's the real driver for quite a while. And uh, as was said of other uh, kings in, in earlier times, when Anas caught cold, all of Jerusalem sneezed. Yeah. I mean, that's, you know, reflective of the fact that Jesus's that, that when Jesus goes before the current high priest, it's already a done deal that Jesus will be executed. Mm-hmm. This is this is there's no question about it. And thus the the court or the trial that Caiaphas presides over is really a kangaroo court. And uh, and we know from other studies that the way that Jesus is treated by the Sanhedrin, by Caiaphas, uh, is uh, filled with irregularities, shall, shall we say. And th- that, again, is a reflection of the carrying out of Anas's will. And by the way, when Jesus is standing before Anas, before he goes to stand in front of Caiaphas, uh, we see the uh, physical abuse began begin to be heaped upon Jesus. Um, there's this passage in John chapter 18, uh, which uh, verse 19, which says the high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples. Well, it is still a nos, but it is common. It was common for uh, past high priests to still have the title reserved for them. And so we're we're talking to Anas, and Anas wants to know about Jesus. And Jesus says, uh, I spoke openly to the world. I haven't ever said anything that isn't common knowledge. And I taught consistently daily in the temple. So how come you're asking me about my doctrine and about the, the early movement and, and about my intentions? And apparently... <laughs> And then hidden in there is, why are you asking me here in, in the dark at night in the in the hidden place? Yeah. Why, why are we doing this uh, privately? Such subterfuge. Yeah. When when I everything that I've said and done has been public in the light yeah. of day in this most holy place on earth, by the way, which is the temple. Uh, surely, if I've said any would have said anything amiss, then those who heard me in the temple would have called me on the carpet. Yeah. Well, apparently this doesn't set well with uh, the Anasa's assistant because uh, Jesus then um, gets, you know, slapped 
And that's the beginning then of the, the physical abuse that, that Jesus has to endure. Uh, before Caiaphas, then, we have this exchange that, again, shows Jesus boldly declaring who he really is. And so um, uh, those that want to follow along, I encourage them to turn to back to Matthew chapter 26. And we're going to take a look at verses 57 through 68. So again, Matthew 26, 57 through 68. And this is, this is what it says. And they that laid hold on Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were assembled. So we know that that's not strictly accurate. He went first to Anas. And by the way, when Elder McConkie describes the arrest of Jesus, he makes an interesting statement that Jesus is led away with a rope around his neck like a common criminal. And I have looked high and low for that reference in scripture, and I can't find it. And I wonder if, in fact, that's a special gift granted to Elder McConkie, because when he was speaking, when he said that, it was just a few few days before he himself passed away. Uh, but it becomes our gift to know uh, a bit more about the scene that unfolds at the entrance to the garden. So anyway, Jesus now is in front of Caiaphas. Peter followed him afar unto the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now the chief priests and the elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. <clears throat> well, we know that it can't be the entire Sanhedrin of 71 members because we've got a couple of, of uh, council members who are followers of Jesus. One is, is Nicodemus and the other is a great hero of this uh, period named Joseph of Arimathea. So I think scholars now believe that this is the lesser Sanhedrin of 13 or 23 members, which has some um, power to, uh, to judge uh, capital crimes, capital cases. Nevertheless, um, Jesus is standing in front of this body. They seek witnesses. None were found. Then came two false witnesses and, and twist the facts and says, this fellow says he's going to destroy the temple. Jesus doesn't say anything. And the high priest then jumps in and says to, to Jesus, I adjure thee by the living God. This is verse 63. I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. So there's an interesting equation that we need to be aware of that lies just below the surface. And the equation is the Messiah equals the Son of God equals God himself and equals the King of Israel. So that equation there is understood by everybody and that and what happens then makes even more sense. Jesus says unto, verse 64, Jesus says unto the high priest, thou hast said. But that's not the way the gospel of Mark re records it. The gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 14, verse 62, says that Jesus answers the high priest with the phrase, I am. Again, ego a me. 
Ehia Asher Ehia, I am that I am, right? And so Jesus has just identified himself as the Messiah, as the Son of God, as God, as the rightful King of Israel. And that's why back in Matthew chapter 26, verse 65, we see the high priest rending his clothes and saying he's spoken blasphemy, because it isn't all that clear from Matthew's report as to why Jesus has spoken blasphemy. It becomes clear when we look at Mark 14, verse 62. Uh, so we read those two accounts and we get, uh, I think, the approximate uh, description of what of what really happened. And then, of course, uh, more physical abuse is heaped upon Jesus. He, uh, the, the, the lesser Sanhedrin says he's guilty of death. Matthew says they spit in his face, they buffeted him. Others smote him with the palms of their hands. They mock him, saying, Prophesy unto us, thou Christ, who is that smote thee. Uh, they have um, blindfolded him. And that's pretty much the description that's found in all of the synoptic gospels is those same things. But the part that intrigues me is the smiting with the open palm and uh, come to uh, realize that that was treatment that was reserved for slaves. And so Jesus is now being lumped together, being regarded with the lowest rungs of society. He's a, he is a slave. He's a criminal. Uh, the faster we can get rid of him, uh, the better, uh, you know, the more injunctions we can bring against him uh, to expedite things, the better off we are. Uh, following that, in Matthew 26, we have uh, the episode with, with Peter denying Jesus. And by this time, it's morning. And Matthew 27 tells us that when morning has come, all the chief priests and elders of the people to counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and when they had bound him, they led him to Pilate, uh, who was uh, the Roman governor. And so now things get uh, a bit tricky because Jesus is worthy of death in Jewish law <clears throat> because he's committed blasphemy. That means nothing to the Romans. And so they have to come up with a different charge how to get Jesus convicted. And so if we look at Luke chapter 23, I, I know Luke is in here. I saw it. <laughs> Luke chapter 23, verse 2. This is the charge they bring against Jesus to their Roman audience. Quote, we have found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ the King. Well, that makes Jesus then guilty of sedition or treason, <clears throat> and that's the, and that's the big no-no in the Roman Empire at this time. So we see them adjusting the the charge against Jesus to fit the audience, and and it's usually we usually say that Jesus was taken by the Jewish leaders to the Roman governor because the Jewish leaders didn't have authority to carry out capital punishment, which I don't believe is true because we have instances like uh, Stephen, 
one of the Jewish leaders described in Acts chapter 7, who is stoned, summarily dismissed, and then stoned uh, by Jewish leadership. So I think, honestly, if we're to if if we're to describe um, why involved the Romans is because Jewish leaders are looking for someone to hide behind. They're looking for uh, uh, an opportunity to say, well, we got approval from the Romans. Uh, well, and they're going to have the Romans do it. So for most people, it will look like it was the Romans and not them. Exactly. And, uh, and frankly, they don't want an insurrection uh, started by uh, their own Jewish people. Yeah. who are believers in in Jesus Christ. In fact, that's part of why they're killing Christ because they don't want that. Yeah. And uh and there is a well, we'll get to that passage in in just a moment. Uh we had mentioned uh earlier you had mentioned and and I did as well the illegality or certainly the irregularity of this kangaroo court. And uh, there have been different studies written about that. Um, but uh, rather than go through all of those, uh, the one that I'm most intrigued by is uh, actually uh, rabbinic law that says you cannot convict a person in capital cases uh, by unanimous vote. And that sounds weird to us in the modern Western world because it's only by unanimous uh, verdict of the jury that a person can be convicted. But in those days, they were very sensitive towards the possibility of collusion, that uh, if everybody says he's guilty, that must mean that they've gotten together ahead of time and they've, yeah. they've you know, made the, made the decision. And in fact, that's exactly what happens. So that's, that's an intriguing aspect of this trial. Uh, Elder Talmadge has a section in his book, Jesus the Christ. Um, it's been pointed out that that's uh, what he says about the different points of, um, of illegality of the trial are not entirely accurate. Um, leave that for the lawyers to, to, to wrestle out. But, but I do know that according to to Jewish law and some other points that are made by Elder Talmadge, that this is highly irregular, uh, yeah. and and it should not have resulted in Jesus's decree of guilty. So uh, Pilate uh, looks at Jesus and I think says, uh, "I don't, I'm not quite sure what I'm supposed to do with him," and uh, and and Jesus remains. Uh, silent through part of the the, the uh, arraignment until Pilate learns that uh, the the province from which Jesus hails namely Galilee uh, has uh, its leader in town and that's Herod Antipas and so Pilate then sends Jesus to Herod Antipas Herod Antipas is famous for two reasons Number one, uh, it's the only person we know of before whom Jesus stood and did not utter, utter a single word. And we know that uh, that Jesus feels some contemptuous feelings for Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the one who put his cousin, John the Baptist, to death. Yep. 
he is slippery and uh, and he is uh, he's not an upright person. Uh, Jesus once referred to Herod Antipas as that fox, you know, and it wasn't a compliment about his good looks. Right? <laughs> no. So, so we know that Jesus is silent, uh, and uh, and I think uh, that's a, a symbol of the way that Jesus felt towards yeah. him. Um, lack of respect. Uh, the the other reason that Pilate is famous is, or excuse me, that Herod is famous is because as a result of Jesus's being sent to Herod, Herod and Pilate become friends. They had they had been at odds points before, and so you know, gee, we're so glad that Jesus could provide you know an opportunity for <laughs> two rascals to become. Uh, friends. So Herod can find uh, no reason to uh, command Jesus's death. He's sent back to Pilate. And I think now Pilate is stuck. He's looking for a way out of this. And, and I like the description in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, those that might want to follow along, we're going to look at Matthew 27, starting with verse 15. <clears throat> uh, and so Jesus is now taken back to Pilate. We learn in verse 15 that uh, the feast of uh, feast of Passover was near and the governor, go previous governors have uh, been wont to release unto the people a prisoner. Uh, and, uh, and this second hearing then before Pilate provides an opportunity for Pilate to find a way out of this hot political hot potato. Pontius Pilate is an interesting figure in, in my uh, view. He's the Roman governor. He's from the knightly class. Uh, but he uh, he's not a great politician. He doesn't govern the Jewish people well. He's very insensitive. To, uh, to their ways. He's treading on eggshells because of a number of things that he's done uh, yeah. that have incurred the wrath of the ire of the Jewish people using Jerusalem treasury funds to build an aqueduct, uh, setting up shields that are offensive because uh, of the Jewish prohibition, no graven images, and he has images carved on this. There are a number of things he slaughtered a bunch of people. He slaughtered a bunch of people. So this this tells us then that Pilate is trying to figure out how to, you know, recuse himself from this political disaster. Uh, he's also getting some pressure from his wife, interestingly. So. Well, and and that's and that's uh uniquely reported in Matthew 27, verse 19. Oh well, let, let me go back and say. Uh, so they're gonna gonna follow the custom to release a prisoner, verse sixteen, and they had then a notable prisoner called uh, Barabbas. Uh, Therefore, when they were gathered together, Pilate said unto them, "Whom will ye release uh, that I release, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ?" And uh, and this is really ironic. Because, as most people know, the name Barabbas means son of a father or son of the father. Uh, 
And so I think Barabbas is specifically chosen uh, to, to provide this stark contrast between one son of the father and another man who's called the son of the father. And surely the people will choose uh, Jesus to be released because Barabbas is such a bad man. He's guilty of sedition, number one on the Roman hit parade. Yeah, and, that, and that's an ironic thing, I'd say, even before we move on, that, that the reason that Christ is brought to the Romans is because the the Jews or well the Sanhedrin the high priests and so on are afraid that that he will have people rebel against Rome uh, because they're accepting him as the Messiah and so on the thing they accuse him of before Pilate is sedition and so they have a person that they're afraid is guilty of sedition and a person who actually already is guilty of sedition and that's their choices right again this irony that's just crazy and I th I think uh, I think Pilate is counting on yeah. the crowd saying, well, release, you know, Jesus. Um, yeah. We Bar can't release Barabbas, Barabbas. So it has to be Jesus be, is what he's thinking. Be Jesus. And, and of course uh, they make things worse for Pilate by saying, well, let's release this notable prisoner, this insurrectionist, this robber, this murderer. I mean, how bad can you get? Right? Yeah. Yeah. But the irony, irony goes uh, even, even further. And, uh, and that's seen in a in a a, a, a a variant, an ancient variant of uh, of Matthew twenty seven sixteen and seventeen, where Barabbas the prisoner is called Jesus Barabbas, and uh, Origen, the, the great biblical scholar in the third century. Uh, implies that that full name of the of the murderer and seditionist is found in most manuscripts in his day. That that we what we're seeing is that we not only have Barabbas standing next to the true Son of God, but Barabbas's first name is Jesus. So we have Jesus the false son of the father beside jesus the true son of the father that's that to me is the is the height of irony in this uh, in this circumstance yeah. and uh, and um, um i forget his first name professor mann who wrote the um the anchor bible commentary on uh, the book of mark uh talks about the fact that there is evidence to show that the full name Jesus Barabbas originally appeared in Mark's gospel. Hmm. So uh, there we have it. And from that, I, I draw a couple of lessons. Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting that everything has to provide us with a lesson, but pretty close. <laughs> and, and so um, we, we need a few thus we sees, right? Uh, yeah, Ella, Mormon. Ex so, yeah. Exactly almost everywhere in the life of Jesus. So what are the lessons that I take from this? Jesus knew the heartache of having his good name counterfeited by the vilest of evil persons, a murderer, a robber, and, and uh, guilty of sedition. And, and yet the one who gets off scot-free is this 
vile sinner. Uh, so does I think what I'm saying is that Lucifer manufactures and uses counterfeits to make all people miserable like an So if he uses counterfeits to thwart Heavenly Father's plan. Uh, and oftentimes those counterfeits look very, very close to what the truth is. And I think you can use this um, as a, at, with some caution, you can use this to teach the principle that there are counterfeits in the world. Counterfeits sometimes look very much like the truth. We need to be very, very careful. And that's why we need to have the constant influence of, of the Holy Ghost, the constant influence of the Spirit, because we're in this spiritual battle literally and lucifer is using every means available to him to thwart the plan of god and i and that's what i that's a rather than just have this be an interesting fact oh jesus barabbas versus jesus barabbas which is an interesting fact and a great irony but there's a lesson to be drawn uh, from that um so what then happens of course is that Sentence is pronounced uh, against Jesus. Jesus is scourged. A crown of thorns is placed on his head. Um, he is a, he's given a reed uh, in his right hand. He uh, to uh, to mock his status as uh, false king of the Jews. Uh, those soldiers that are uh, involved in the scourging bend the knee to him again out of mockery. Um, they hit him on the head, which drives the, you know, the the crown of thorns deeper into his scalp. And then um, he, Jesus, is ultimately made to carry the cross uh, to the place of crucifixion. But uh Interestingly enough, I think it's not the whole cross. I think it's just the cross beam in Latin called the patibulum. It's a great big heavy chunk of wood that Jesus has to carry, maybe upwards of 75 pounds. Olive wood, as you know, is very, very heavy. It's been stained with uh, previous victims' blood. Uh, and we have um, we have uh, an account, at least one account, I think more than one account of this is the way crucifixion was carried out in many cities of the Roman world where where the guilty party was made to march through the streets carrying the cross beam, the patibulum, until uh, they get to the place of crucifixion, which, uh, which Jesus does. Um, the, the upshot of all of this, lest we miss the mark here, is that uh, Jesus is really running on empty physically at this point. Mm -hmm. He's been up for more than 24 hours. He's been through a very emotionally wrenching experience in the upper room. Uh, he has bled from every pore in Gethsemane. Uh, the, the clothing that he has been wearing um, is stained with the blood, but more importantly, for our discussion, it has it has caused the the clothing to adhere to the skin, 
where he's bled from every pore. And so when that, when his clothing is yanked off of him, uh, it uh, reopens these little, these thousands of little wounds, the pores. Uh, and then that would cause him to become chilled as the, as the cool night air uh, hit his um, blood stained body. Um, he's been um, brutally abused, punched, slapped, blindfolded, um, all of these things. And, and now uh, he's been marched from um, the, the palace of Caiaphas to the palace of, of Herod or the quarters of Herod um, back to Pilate. And so he, he is pretty, pretty exhausted physically. Yeah. And, and one has to believe that spiritually he's, he's suffering as well. The gospels of Matthew and John report in more or less the same language that the, uh, as the gospel of Mark, that, uh, having delivered his, his final public warning, uh, Jesus came to Golgotha or the place of the skull. Interestingly enough, the Joseph Smith translation changes the word skull to burial, the place of burial. Only the Gospel of Luke calls it Calvary. Uh, the Latin Calvaria is uh, the Latin equivalent of the Aramaic Golgotha, which again means skull. And the four Gospel writers record that uh, at Golgotha, the sinless Son of God was crucified between two thieves, two other men. Luke refers to them as malefactors or criminals. Matthew and Mark call them thieves. And uh, John does not really label them. But all of the Gospels state explicitly that at Golgotha, the Savior of the world was subjected to the slow, agonizing torture of crucifixion, which is a form of execution that is so horrible that even the Romans uh, demanded it be outlawed after a certain period of time. Uh, also, I didn't mention the fact that scourging, which happened in uh, the, the judgment hall of Pilate, uh, was not just simply whipping, but it involved um, these scourges, which were um, co a collection of, of uh, leather strips with lead balls, uh, at the end of them and then braided into these uh, leather uh, strips were pieces of stone or bone or metal. And so when Jesus is uh, flogged using this, uh, it, it isn't just causing bruises, but it's causing uh, pieces of flesh, tissue uh, to be pulled away from his body. Uh, it has been said that sometimes scourging alone uh, caused enough trauma to the victim that they died from scourging rather than having to go through the, the process of, of crucifixion. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know if you're interested in talking about crucifixion. I'm not particularly just because uh, I've spent so much time looking at it, reading about it, studying it. It's just horrible. There's nothing even humanely uh, or remotely humane uh, about all of it. But this is what uh, Jesus then faced as he hung on the cross from 9 a.m. to, to noontime. 
Um, I think I'm satisfied with just saying it was, uh, as you've already said, but the, the way it produced death was intended to be agonizing and slow as you basically had to choose between which kind of pain you would have and you'd go back and forth between them until it, it finally killed you. And uh, it's it's uh, it, that was its purpose to yeah. be well, mentally yeah. and physically tortuous. And and there's a secondary purpose involved. Uh, there's a Roman writer named Quintilian who says, quote, whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the yeah. most people can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. So in other words, crucifixion was not just to punish the the wrongdoer but it was in fact to serve as a deterrent uh you you jewish people look at this and if you get out of line that's in store for you yeah so and so is, it was in a very public place where also mocking absolutely abs, yeah. abs, absolutely uh and so again the physical hardships of of crucifixion are are brought to the fore um i I'm expecting that you will uh, point out that when Jesus was brought to the place of crucifixion, Golgotha, uh, he the the patibulum with him attached to it was thrown down and attached to the upright pole, the stipes, uh, and uh, and that one of the the ways that you died from crucifixion was through asphyxiation. You, yeah. you lose the ability to breathe. Uh, but the real point uh, that I am interested in hearing you make a comment on is uh, a discovery in 1968 when the mm -hmm. remains of a, of a man crucified in the first century. In Jerusalem uh, or that area. It, it's yeah. just outside of Jerusalem that his burial was found. So you'd expect he was crucified in a busy place outside just out of the walls yeah. of jerusalem yeah yeah um and i don't know if you have a uh, a photograph of a reconstruction of the ankle bone that they found in this uh, ossuary or this bone box in that place that you're talking about with a spike driven through it and the implication is that the spike hit a knot in the wood because the as the spike was driven through the ankle bone of this particular person the end of it doubles back on itself indicating that it had hit yeah. you know, so a, they couldn't a, pull it out usually they would pull yeah. these out and reuse them but this one they couldn't because it had become yeah. a, a a hook as it were so what we have in the israel museum is a reconstruction of this ankle bone because uh, bones uh, must, according to Jewish law, they must be reinterred within a certain period of time. Yeah. And, uh, and and this is a graphic. Up to this point, up to 1968, the only evidence we have of uh, crucifixion in Roman Judea was literary evidence, historical evidence. Now we have archaeological artifacts yeah. that talk about this. And, and it looks like uh, we, we typically draw... Uh, the nail is going through like the the uh, foot bones, uh, you know, kind of in the top of the foot. Uh, so they're, they're both on the front part of that center beam. Right. But at least this person, it looks like they went through the heel so that he had a foot on either side of the center beam. 
and they they nailed through the heel to the side of the center beam. So that's at least how this person was, which makes you think it's quite likely others were crucified that way as well. Well, thank you. Um, we I think we've already said that Jesus was nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. on a Friday morning and he remained there until 3 p.m. in the afternoon when he died. The great prophet Isaiah prophesied of this event in Isaiah chapter 22, where he mentions the nail in the sure place. And that's exactly what we have found uh, with, uh, with crucifixion victims, that uh, there were nails not, not just driven through the palms of Jesus's hands, but all through, also through the wrists. And you think about the, the skill to drive that nail through the wrist in exactly the right spot and not sever blood vessels or nerve rather would uh, the by the way it was done increase uh, the torture um just horrible so the nail in the sure place then is um, important to us because uh, Jesus, Christ and his atonement are at the center piece of our temple or the center place uh, of, of our temple worship and the covenants that we make there. Uh, and uh, Isaiah's phrase uh, is a, an important reminder of what Jesus suffered for us. As Jesus uh, was on the cross, he uttered seven statements. Uh, we can, we know what they are, but I think more important is what they teach us. And uh, I believe that as we look carefully at these seven statements, that we see that Jesus was concerned for others. He, he, we get a glimpse of Jesus's um, forgiving nature. Um, we get uh, his last thoughts, which are uh, of thinking of his fa father and his mother. Um, we learn that in the midst of Jesus's personal burdens, uh, he turned outward to others. Uh, Jesus, as we said, carried personal burdens, but the character of Christ was such that he was continually reaching out in love, in compassion, in service, while others, the natural person, the natural man, was self-absorbed, self-centered, and selfish. Uh, those uh, comments come from a talk given by Elder Bednar, David Bednar, uh, in a Christmas devotional at the Missionary Training Center. And it is a powerful testimony to uh, what Jesus was thinking even up to the um, end of his life. There is an interesting comment that we find in the Joseph Smith translation of Matthew 27, verse 50. And fortunately, that has been preserved for us uh, in the footnotes of Matthew 27, the King James uh, Bible um, version, the footnotes there, so that the last thing that Jesus said was really this, quote, 
Jesus, when he had cried with a loud voice, saying, Father, it is finished, thy will is done, yielded up the ghost. And I love that added insight from the Joseph Smith translation of this verse, because it takes us full circle back to our pre, the premortal council recorded in Moses chapter four, where we saw, we heard, we witnessed Jesus offer himself as a willing sacrifice to do the father's will and that the glory would be given to the father, not Jesus, that that willingness to do the father's will, then we see surface throughout Jesus's life, but particularly in Gethsemane, where Jesus is not my will, but thine be done. Uh, we see it um, in uh, the, the introduction that Jesus gives of himself to the American Israelites. Um, mm -hmm. I have suffered the will of the Father in all things from the beginning. Uh, it is this remarkable, singular, laser-focused attitude of always doing the will of our Father in heaven. And it makes me want to ask the question continually, Jesus always did the Father's will. What will I do? And, and of course, then this statement as Jesus is expiring on the cross, thy will is done. He acknowledges that he kept his promise, that he kept his covenant to the Father, that he did everything that the Father asked him to do in order to make this infinite and perfect atonement. I think this is particularly well captured in Luke. Um, Luke doesn't have the part about uh, it is uh, finished and thy will is done, but he's, he's got, and I suspect that these two things went together. Uh, he says, into thy hands I commend my spirit. But if, if we look at uh, what Luke has, so Luke records the first uttered saying, of uh, first known utterance of the Savior, first mm -hmm. recorded utterance, we could say. And that is when um, his parents find him teaching in the uh, temple when he's 12 uh, and uh, they've gone home from Passover and they come back and they find him. And the first thing we have him saying is, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business. So yeah. the, according to Luke, the very first thing that, that he tells us, the Savior says, I'm sure he said things when he was younger, but yeah. the first thing he tells us, the Savior said, is about, I do my father's will. And the last thing he says, according to Luke, is, is basically, I've done it. I can commend myself to you. I've done your will. And so I love that 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 not only bookends the Savior's life, it is the essence of the Savior's life, that he is an expression of the Father's will. From beginning to end, he did the Father's will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Just a couple of comments in closing uh, after the Savior. Uh, well, and, and, and maybe b before we do that, I, I'd yeah. like to just spend a second, uh, and we don't have to spend too long on this, but on one of the other statements that uh, he makes from the cross that uh, to me is is just so haunting. And we've, we, in some ways, we've spoken about it already. But when he says, uh, Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, uh, or my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we've talked about how he had to end up doing this alone, um, how he had to uh, experience the withdrawal of the father's uh, presence, which seems to have surprised him here. 
Um, and uh, I think that's part of what the Savior had to suffer was to do this completely alone and to feel unexpectedly alone. Uh, he had not ever personally done something that would cause him to lose the Father's spirit. And so it doesn't seem quite fair in some ways. Uh, that he would lose the, the, the father's presence. And that's part of the point. He, he, he experienced our sins. And so he lost the father's spirit and, and it wasn't fair. And he experienced what wasn't fair and uh, what wasn't deserved and uh, found himself in his greatest hour asking, why have you left me? Why am I alone? Um, and then still treading that wine press alone uh, despite that terrible, lonely feeling that he must have gone through. And I think that's that's part of what his atoning sacrifice was, not only to do it alone, but to to feel abandoned and uh, unjustly left uh, on your own. These are terrible feelings, and he did it. Uh, I think that that's one of the points of uh, the Joseph Smith translation addition to John chapter 3, verse 34, uh, for God giveth him not the spirit by measure. In other words, he didn't, you know, it didn't come and go, but rather it dwelled in him, even the fullness. Mm -hmm. What, what, what the Joseph Smith translation of John three is really saying is that, uh, you know, the spirit comes and goes. And so what happens to us sometimes isn't, unfair it's it's the natural consequence of not having the spirit but your point well taken that jesus had the father's influence his spirit his power dwelling in him in fullness and that's what made it so unfair for him and, yeah. and thus uh we can truly say that he descended below yeah. way below all things i i, I like that very much <clears throat> After Jesus uh, dies at 3 p.m., uh, there's a, a horrible earthquake. Uh, this had been prophesied uh, as early uh, as um, uh, around 600 B.C., 1 Nephi, uh, chapter 19, verse 12. Uh, the, the testimony uh, of the ancient prophet uh, Zenic, uh, where we or Zenus, excuse me, the ancient prophet Zenus, where um, uh, we have the statement that uh, the God of nature suffers and therefore all of nature is in commotion. And that's what we see. But even more importantly, uh, there's some symbolic things that are, I think, worthwhile pointing out. With the veil of the temple then being torn, uh, it exposed the most holy place of the holy temple, and that's the Holy of Holies. Um, the priests and the Jewish leaders would have looked upon this with horror. The holiest place on earth was now desecrated. God's sanctity was violated. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, this, in a way, symbolized even to the Jewish leaders the end of this Mosaic dispensation the fulfillment uh, of the law of Moses. But there's this, uh, you use the word haunting, and this truly, uh, to me, is haunting, this statement by Elder Bruce R. McConkie. Quote, The veil itself is said to have been 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, of the thickness of the palm of the hand, 
and fashioned in 72 squares, which were joined together. So it was piece, piece work. It was so heavy that it took hundreds of priests to manipulate it. If the veil was at all such as is described in the Talmud, it could not have been rent in twain by a mere earthquake or the fall of the lintel, although its composition in squares fastened together might explain how the rent uh, might be described in the gospel. Indeed, everything seems to indicate that although the earthquake might furnish the physical basis, the rent of the temple veil was with reverence be it said, really made by the hand of, of God. And, uh, and that, I think, uh, is, um, is something to uh, think deeply about, particularly uh, when we add to that the symbolic nature that the temple being torn is symbolic of the Savior's flesh being torn. Um, a new dispensation being inaugurated by Jesus's torn flesh, uh, symbolized to all of the Jewish world by the, the torn veil. Um, the fact that it is now very, very clear in our temple endowment ceremony that the veil of the temple was and is and always will be a symbol of Jesus Christ, which I think is one of the great contributions of modern revelation uh, to this rather obscure passage in Hebrews, which talks about the temple, uh, the veil, the, the temple veil being Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, and I'm, and I, I'm just, I, again, I come back to the idea of so grateful that we're now at a point where we can have more light and truth and knowledge and clear uh, symbolism explained to us uh, because of the day and the age in which we live and the fact that we do have uh, modern uh, temples. Uh, one Maybe last I can add one oh, other please, idea please to that do. symbol, if it's all right. And and uh, uh, maybe I'm off a little bit, but I hope not. I've just uh, finished last week writing a book on Easter. I hope to come out next Easter. And, and this week I'm kind of going through and, and editing and so on. Uh, and as I did that, uh, I, I wrote about, I, I think the veil also symbolizes that which separates us from God's presence. It's got the cherubim on it that are evocative of the cherubim and the flaming sword that um, that was placed in the Garden of Eden to prevent Adam and Eve from coming back into the presence of God, basically, until it was time. And of course, Christ is the one who makes it possible to be time. And that's why the veil can symbolize both Christ and what separates us from God because it, we're separated from God until Christ makes it possible for us to go to be with God. And so I think that the, the tearing asunder of the veil in some ways also says the it's, it's finished. The way for mankind to come back into the presence of God is here. The, the barrier is gone. It's been torn aside by Christ himself. Well, and, and not only that, you made me think uh, of uh, other symbolism that uh, that uh, before, during the Mosaic dispensation, uh, we come to God through the priest. The priest represents us. And now with the temple veil torn uh, and symbolically showing us that we re represent ourselves uh, mm. to God, that, that that old dispensation is done away with. 
So all and of, we can uh, all be priests and priestesses. Yeah, we, <laughs> yeah. In fact, that that was the original intent of God. Yep. Uh, the great Jehovah, when the Israelites were brought to Mount Sinai, uh, if they will uh, heed my word, I will make of them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. I'll make them kings and queens, priests and priestesses. And these are not priests of the Aaronic order. These are priests of the everlasting Melchizedek order. The Aaronic priesthood mm -hmm. didn't exist at that time, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, that was the original intent of God from the time of Adam on is to bring us back into Heavenly Father's presence and make us uh, as he is, kings and queens, priests and priestesses. Uh I guess in summarizing the significance of Golgotha, I would just briefly say that we see all of the physical horrors of Gethsemane return, the uh, the spiritual horrors, the total abandonment, which happens twice, the shedding of Christ's blood again on the cross, which now happens twice. Uh, the meekness of the Savior is underscored. One of the great passages in my humble opinion, that points us to Jesus's personality is 1 Peter 2, 19 to 25. Jesus being reviled, reviled not again. Um, Jesus did not, uh, did, was not consumed by retribution. Jesus did what he did out of pure love. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I hope and pray that I can reach that point sometime. We see the Father's will again fulfilled. Uh, and uh, and we see again that Jesus becomes the great substitute. The, the passage that has consumed me for the last couple of years is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he, meaning God, for God hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This atonement is a substitutionary atonement. Make no mistake about it. Jesus Christ is uh, offers to be our substitute if we'll allow him to. And I can't help but think of the great uh, parable that was crafted by President Gordon B. Hinckley about uh, the one-room schoolhouse where the boys were so rough mm. that uh, no teacher uh, had been able or wanted to, to keep teaching him until uh, a young, energetic teacher applied and, and how the lunch of big tom was stolen and and it was the hungry little fellow who did it and uh, rather than than punish the the scrawny little uh, fellow um big tom whose lunch had been stolen and took the licking for him that jesus that that's the whole meaning behind being a substitute is that you literally do take uh, the punishment that uh, should have been ours because of the violation of of laws, and I'm grateful to know that Jesus offers not just payment for sin, but he offers redemption, which is in a practical way of saying, at least in my words, that when you align, when you take to yourself the covenants that make you a true disciple, Jesus then then moves you to that point where you would have been in terms of progression, that point where you would have been had you not sinned at all. He moves you to that point where he is. And so there's a huge difference between mere payment and redemption and Jesus Jesus offers us redemption. Um, I, 
I had uh, some comments about uh, those that were at the at the cross, uh, as described in John chapter 19. I think I'll forego those. Uh, the, the women that were at the cross had been with him since his ministry in Galilee. These are great unsung heroes uh, of the of the ministry of Jesus, of the kingdom, according to uh, to Luke chapter 8. It's interesting, Luke is interested in the status of women, it seems like, yeah. more than the other gospel authors. Uh, and, and maybe just close by saying um, that we see, again, heroes uh, with the fulfilling of the burial custom uh, for, for Jesus, uh, that these unsung heroes are Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. If anyone has ever suffered a loss, I think they know how much it's appreciated when others come in and take control of necessities that must be done uh, in making arrangements for the burial and all of those sorts of things. And this is basically what Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus do as they as they uh, say to the family of Jesus and to the close friends, uh, we'll make the arrangements. Uh, you tend to the things that you need to do. Um, Joseph of Arimathea is a rich man. Uh, he is, he begs the body of Jesus after uh, and takes it to a new tomb. And the other thing to point out is that though the Jewish, according to Jewish law and the status that Jesus held, he should have been buried in a common grave unmarked for thieves, for criminals. But Joseph and uh, Nicodemus see to it that Jesus receives the royal burial that he deserved. Um, there's a passage in um, Second Chronicles chapter 16, which talks about the uh, the weight of embalming spices that's used in an Israelite royal burial, a hundred weight of embalming spices. And that, as it turns out, is the the amount that's used in the burial of uh, Jesus. Uh, and that's corroborated by our friend Josephus. I am uh, so grateful, truly grateful to have the four gospels as part of our scriptural treasury that te teach us what happened uh, in Jesus's life. Yes, the Book of Mormon is unparalleled in terms of explaining the doctrine of the atonement, but I am, I am amazed at what we're able to learn from the Gospels about the, the life's events of the Savior and how impoverished we would be uh, if we did not have these four Gospels. And I'm grateful to you for giving me the chance to bear my testimony. Uh, I, again, express my love and appreciation for the Savior and for all of you, those of you who, who teach Him every day. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.